Good morning. I add my greeting to that of David. I'm uh, pastor here. My name is Jesse, pastor here at IGC. As David uh, so well introduced uh, um, the, the theme of this season, Advent, it's this time of, of preparation, of waiting. We are, uh, in many ways, our commercial season likes to, to start Christmas like way back in like Halloween. Um, but this is a way that we as a church can, can prepare ourselves for Christmas, prepare ourselves for the, the birth of our Savior. And, and Advent in particular is not just a sentimental kind of season. It's actually a season of, of repentance, of longing. This, this learning to long for the Savior, learning to hope. That's what Advent is. And we're going to use First Peter to go through um, Advent, to look at these virtues of hope, of peace, of joy, and of love. So this morning we're going to read from First uh, Peter chapter 3, and we're going to begin in verse 13. First Peter 3, verse 13. You can look on your bulletins, or I invite you to look also in your Bible. Fine. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience. So that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Verse 18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the, unright- for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed the spirits in prison. Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven, is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father in heaven, we come to you now and we ask that you would give us hope. Especially for those who are despairing, for those who are hopeless, we pray that they would see the Lord Jesus and the hope that he offers in his beautiful gospel. Father, we pray that you would open our eyes and our ears, that we might see truly your great love for us. All flesh is like grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. In Christ's name, amen. If you want a summary of today's word, here it is. If you're a note taker, here it is. God's word calls us to fearlessly share our hope that Christ has saved us and that he reigns sovereign. Let's say that again. God's word calls us to fearlessly share our hope 
that Christ has saved us and that he reigns sovereign. Let's first look at the courage of hope. The courage of hope. Now, Peter has been working through this letter with us to to give us a vision of hope. He begins in chapter 1, verse 3 to say that we've been born again to a living hope. That the hope that we have in Jesus is something altogether different. And then, later on in chapter 1, he says, I want you to set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, he's saying, hey, our hope is this future-oriented, that Christ is going to give us grace, he's going to come, and that's where our hope is. So Peter has been trying to equip us with this hope, this hope. But well, how does this hope fit in with where we've been in, in, in Peter? So let me give you some context. We've been talking about what does it mean to live a beautiful and winsome life? Beginning in chapter 2, verse 12, Peter says, live in such a way, live in such a beautiful way that your life witnesses to the beauty of the gospel. So that even if people... Don't believe it. If they hate you, they at least have to say, hey, that's a compelling life. And then he's gone on to say this beautiful life is actually a life of submission and service. He, he reorients our, our understanding of beauty to be that of submission and service. Saying the beautiful life is the submissive life. Which, which, which really plays with our categories, right? As modern people. We think that beauty is Control, power. And yet, Peter says, the beautiful life is out of submission and service. And now, he's actually going to sum up, uh, uh, he's going to conclude a thought of, how do we live with outsiders in view of the people that are going to be looking at us, look at the church, this holy nation, how are we to live in view of them? To live as an exile people. And he's going to give us the key in verse 14 and 15. He says, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Now what he's saying is that if you're living differently, if you're living this beautiful life, people are going to notice and they're going to mention something. And so you need to be ready to give them an answer of what your hope is. Right? So, so the, the order is important. Because all through chapter 2, up to this point in chapter 3, he said, walk the walk, walk the walk, walk the walk. Live a beautiful life. And now, he says, but you also need to talk the talk. Notice the order. It's not talk the talk first and then walk the walk. He's saying both are important. That our lives, the, the ethical virtue of our life, is, is, is the preparation for our proclamation of the gospel. That if you only have a beautiful life, no one's going to see it, no one's going to understand it unless you point to Jesus and say, this is what this life is about. Right? Just as a, a life that's just the talk. Right? If you talk the talk and yet you don't walk the walk, if your life is full of, of, of not submission, of, of, of self-promoting, 
Right? It's not going to give a good witness to your words. And so we need both. We need, the, we need to walk the walk and talk the talk. Now, it's interesting what Peter says to focus on. He says, I want you to be prepared, prepared to give a reason for the hope. Now, why is that interesting? Because hope was really not a Greco-Roman virtue. Hope. In fact, the Stoics, one of the predominant philosophies of the day, Stoicism, was actually viewed hope as a liability. Because hope means that there's some desire for something that you don't have. And the Stoics were all about uh, 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 being content with the now. And so they, they looked down on hope. Hope was not, hope was for the weak. Right? Hope was for the weak. Whereas, whereas being satisfied with what you have, that is what, uh, Seneca, the philosopher of Stoicism, encourages. Be, be content, live for the now. Right? Don't, don't bother about hope. Which, which just draws into the contrast of how different, how radical Christianity is. You see, Christianity is this massive future orientation, right? Not only does it give us hope about the future, it gives us one of the most radical, and to the Greeks and the Romans, absurd hopes there is. It gives us a vision of personal immortality, that we as persons are going to live on beyond this life. That's why when, when Peter is, or when, when Paul is giving a defense of, of his faith, they say, you believe in a resurrection? That's absurd. In Acts. But this is what Christianity, Christianity is based on a hope. It looks absurd to the, to the Romans. And yet, Peter says, I want you to engage in hope. Give them a reason for the hope. Now that's interesting. Right? That's, that's the bridge to outsiders. Where is your hope? Peter doesn't say engage what they believe. He doesn't say engage their faith. He says engage their hope. What is the reason for your hope? Now, I, I think that's important because hope, hope is something a little bit more substantial, I think, than, than faith. Oftentimes we think of faith as this abstract intellectual assent, right? Like, what do you believe? It's one where I say, yeah, I believe in Jesus, right? And yet their life, their hope, though, is not. It's like um, asking someone about faith is like asking them about their like, what's your ideal budget, right? Hope is looking at their actual investments. Like, where are you actually putting the money? That's where the hope is. There's something a little bit more um, presumptive about hope. Now, as I said, the, 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 the Stoics would not have liked hope. They would not have agreed that hope was a virtue, but it also, this also, we, we, in our own culture, hope also looks differently than what Peter would say. Because hope for us, there's a whole spectrum of psychiatrists and psychologists since the Holocaust who said that hope is absolutely necessary for living. Unlike the Stoics, they say we can't live without hope. Man needs hope. And yet, what matters is just that we ascribe some, we find some sort of meaning in life. Um, we find some sort of meaning. There's a, a psychiatrist named Robert J. Lifton. He's 97 years old. And he's made it a part of his life 
to study suffering and catastrophe. Um, his first book was actually about interviewing uh, former residents of Chinese re-education camps. And then if that wasn't cheery enough, he, uh, he'd follow that up by interviewing Nazi doctors. Then he interviewed Vietnam War vets. And in each of these, he's trying to understand why do we, why, why, like, why do we do these evil, wicked things, these catastrophic, and where does hope come from? And this is his summary about what hope comes from. He just, he's 97 years old, and he just published a book called Surviving Our Catastrophes, Resilience and Renewal from Hiroshima to the COVID-19 Pandemic. And he says this, he says, we humans are meaning-hungry creatures, and survivors are particularly starved for meaning that can help them explain their ordeal. Only by finding such meaning can they tell their story and begin to cope with grief and loss. In his interviews with Holocaust survivors, he looks at how did they live their life? How did they, how did they find resilience? And what he found is that, that oftentimes they, they find meaning in trying to, to prevent something similar from happening. But Christian hope is a little bit more definite. That it's a lot more definite. Because Christian hope is not just, not just finding meaning. Christian hope says there is meaning. There's objective meaning. It's, it's not just any meaning. It's objective meaning. It's objective meaning. And which is an audacious thing to say, right? The courage of hope is an audacious thing to say this, that, that, that our suffering, that our misery, our trauma can actually have a meaning that's beyond us. He says, have in your hearts, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. What is your hope this morning? What are you looking forward to? Hope is one of these interesting things. That, that hope, hope has this, this expectation, this, this desire. What are you desiring this morning? There's something audacious, courageous about Christian hope that says, both of the Stoics, no, there is something worth hoping for. And yet, it also speaks to our day to say, there is a, a concrete hope. It's not just any meaning you might pledge to it. Hope. Reason for the hope. Now, what Peter is saying here is that we need to witness to our faith. We need to share our hope. Now, I know that as soon as I begin to say that, some of you get uneasy. Like, I, I don't want to do that. That's awkward, right? You, you mean Peter's t- telling me that I need to share my faith with, with other people? Uh, that's scary, especially in a place where you're expecting persecution or opposition. And, and that makes sense. Look at, look at verse 13 and 14 again. First, Peter says, Now, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? And it, what Peter is saying here is like, Hey, if you are actually doing what I'm telling you, to live as a good citizen, to live in submission, to dedicate yourself to the good, you're probably not going to get persecuted, right? No one likes to persecute Mother Teresa. Like, she's living a good life, right? And so if you're doing this, if you're committing yourself to to good, you have a reasonable expectation that you're not going to suffer. But there are these exceptions in which we will. In verse 14, he says, But even if you should suffer... For righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. So the first reason why we might share our faith 
even if we're scared, is that there is this blessing that will come. Now that word blessed, uh, hashtag blessed, is, is actually, uh, it's, it's a word, uh, macaroni, which means happy. And, and here it seems like Peter is quoting from Jesus in the Beatitudes, uh, Matthew 5.10, where Jesus said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. This is the upside down kingdom of Christ's kingdom. It's, it's when you are persecuted that there is this special blessing that you actually experience in that persecution. Sometimes I fear that like we're so conflict averse and so scared of persecution that we never actually get to experience this state of happiness. Um, I was speaking with a, a, a leader in our Castro Valley community who's a leader in the LGBTQ uh, community. And as I'm talking to him about, he thinks Christianity is absurd. Just absolutely absurd. And as I'm speaking to him, I'm like, there is this moment where I feel the absurdity of my own faith. And yet, friends, like, as I share the love and my hope, my hope, like, there is this blessing, this peace that comes in, even as I know that he thinks I'm a bigot, he thinks I'm an idiot, there is this hope, there is this blessing, this happiness that comes in sharing what you believe, the reason for your hope. If we, if we have joy, which I think we do, sharing our like latest um, discovery on Yelp, right, or, or Belly, like if we have joy in that, how much more joy this like existential, like, like the, the reason for our life hope. How much more? How much more? But you know that if you share, like, a wreck, you're not going to get, like, social ostracism. Well, maybe, maybe you would. One of you, one of you came in with a McDonald's coffee a couple weeks ago, and I, I did, I did judge you a little bit. <laughs> this is a little, a little social ostracism. But, but, but we don't expect the same as our, our, sharing our faith, right? And so what does Peter counsel us to do? Now, it's interesting. Do you remember who Peter is? Do you remember that Peter did not give a defense of his faith? In fact, on the night when Jesus was crucified, Jesus den- or Peter denies him. Not just one time, not just two times, but three times. People come up to Peter and say, hey, didn't I see you with Jesus? And he's like, nuh-uh. Three times. So Peter knows something about being a terrible witness. And yet, once the Holy Spirit comes on Peter, he's the first preacher, the first Christian preacher to preach a sermon in Acts 2, in Pentecost. Like, he is a man on fire for Christ. So how does he do it? Like, how, if we're afraid of sharing the gospel, of sharing our hope with people, how do we get courage? Look at what Peter says. He says, the latter, not only are you blessed, this is the end of verse 14, have no fear of them. Nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. In other words, what he says is that there is a battle in your heart for lordship. Who is on the throne of your heart? And when we are afraid, when we are afraid to share the gospel, it's because we're actually afraid of other people more than the Lord God. He's actually quoting here from Isaiah chapter 8, in which Isaiah is speaking about 
the fear of the Lord versus the fear of man. Listen to what Isaiah, Isaiah says. For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. The Proverbs speak about the fear of man as a snare. When we're afraid about what other people think, that's not a way to live your life. That's a way to be trapped. And the way to get out of that is to have something other, something other than them in your heart. Your heart is always ruled by something. And what Peter, what Peter is saying, what Isaiah is saying, is that the fear of God expels the fear of other people. That when we are afraid and want to obey God more than anything else, that's what actually empowers us to live in the fear of the Lord and to begin to share. So, so, so verse 15, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. I found that when you are excited, when you are hopeful, when your spiritual life is rich and vibrant, it is so much easier to share to share Jesus, to speak of Jesus with Christians and non-Christians. When your heart is in the right place, when your heart is honoring Jesus as Lord, it just comes out of you. That's what Jesus says, right? Out of the, out of the, of the, the mouth, the heart speaks. So this is not some, I, I, I don't want you to take this text and think, I, I need to go read a whole lot of apologetic books, like, about my faith, like, that's what I need to, that might be helpful. I've often found people that like read a lot of apologetic books to be really weird and arrogant. Um, so I don't recommend that. Oftentimes you begin to be more concerned about what you want to say rather than listening and asking questions. But this is, Peter is saying here, give a reason for your hope. Why do you hope in Jesus? There's a courage that hope gives us. Now, let's look, that's the courage of hope. Let's look at the content of hope. We'll look at two reasons for hope. First, salvation. Salvation. We have hope because Christ has saved us. We see this in verse 18. He says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. He goes right in. He said, I want you to be, able to be ready to speak the reason for your hope. And then he goes right into the fact that Jesus saved us. Jesus saved us. Now the problem with a lot of, uh, just, to, just to pick on Robert J. Lipton, he's a 97, the 97-year-old psychiatrist who, who writes, one of the things, he, he sees the human condition so clearly. He's interviewed Nazi doctors. He knows what atrocities we are capable of. And yet... And yet he doesn't see, he has these blinders to this thing called sin. Right? That not only is there affliction, that there is suffering. We live in suffering, but we actually are the ones that do suffer, suffering to each other. Right? We sin against each other. Biblically, sin and suffering are these, these two problems that we need salvation from. We need to be saved from sin and suffering. And we see them right here in verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins. In other words, what it says is, is that our sins are actually the most, the, the, the thing that we are most in trouble for. 
it's not our sufferings, the cancer, the, the war, all of that is, is, is a result of this fallenness that we live in. The Bible tells the story that, that, that everything got off whack whenever Adam and Eve disobeyed and fell away from the Lord. And so suffering, there's this curse that God puts on Adam. It says thorns and thistles will come out of the ground. That's the suffering. And so, so if we, if we want a salvation, we need to be saved from sin and suffering. And that's what Peter is saying. For Christ also suffered once for sins. The, the suffering that we deserve, that our, our rebellion against God, is actually something that, that Christ himself has undergone. And he has suffered for our sins. For our sins. He's dealt with suffering and sin, and he's done it redemptively, so that we now, who do suffer, who do suffer, not for our own fault, can actually consecrate our suffering, that Jesus is with us in in our suffering. Jesus redeems suffering and sin. In fact, Isaiah 53 will say that Jesus bore our sorrows and our grief. So we have hope because Christ has saved us, both from our sins and our Sorrows. And he's saying that look back to the cross. There's something past, historical, about our hope. That we look back in order to have hope for the future. We look back at Jesus and what he's done. And we know that he is going to save us completely. Now this thing that I've been talking about is often called the great exchange. right? This transaction that happens at the cross. That I bring my unrighteousness. He says... The righteous for the unrighteous, right? I bring my unrighteousness, my sin to the cross. Jesus brings his righteousness to the cross. And there's this great exchange. He gets the punishment that I deserve, and I I get the honor and glory that he does. That is basic Christianity. That's the gospel, right? That's, That's what the gospel is. And so, if Jesus would do that for us, how much more hope would we have for the future? If we look back and say, this is how much Jesus loved us, and he would die on the cross, he would give himself for us, how much more can we trust him with our future? Do you see that hope? There's a hope in the salvation that Christ gives us. And the whole goal of this was to bring us to God, says at the end of 18, that he might bring us to God. There's a, in Ephesians 2.12, Paul says that we were without hope and without God in the world, to the Gentiles. But when God comes into the picture, there begins to be hope again. And so, so the fact that God, that Jesus brings us to God, that is our hope. So, are you suffering? Are you suffering? Or I guess the question is, what are you suffering? Every one of us has some sort of suffering. It could be relational. It could be our family our jobs. It could be because we've done something stupid, foolish, sinful. I guarantee you that every one of us is suffering. And Jesus offers us hope that there is meaning in our suffering, that he is with us. He's with us. And as we'll see in two weeks when we talk more about suffering and joy, not only that, but he says, when you suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed There is a joy that you can have even in the midst of your suffering. The Christian hope is not that you will not suffer, 
but it is that you will be triumphant in your suffering because Jesus suffered for you and gave you life. Peter compares, Peter compares the salvation we have with Noah's ark in verse 20. The story, as you might know, is that a great flood that washes over the world because of its great wickedness, but God saves Noah with an ark, bringing him safely through the waters of judgment. And you can imagine the hope that Noah would have, right? Like, he's building a boat. He's never seen rain. He's building a boat, and there's a lot of hope. A lot of hope, like, I hope I have to use this, right? And then he gets into the ark, and he's, he sees this incredible rain that the earth has never seen. There's this hope, like, am I going to get through this? Am I going to get through this? The hope that Noah would have, that God was going to save him, that God had saved him and would save him. Friends, I think that's helpful for us. Like, you might be in that storm. You might be in Noah, and you're in the midst of this, and you're thinking, how is God going to save me? And yet, again, Peter says, look back. Look back to Jesus. There is this hope that the waters will recede. Friends, there is hope that in your suffering, that Jesus is with you. That he has power over your storm. That when he says, peace be still to those waves, as he's rocking around in the disciples' boat, that he has the authority to say that. We're going to look at that in just a second. That is our hope that Jesus will save us and has saved us. Now, he also tells us to look at baptism. He says, look at verse 21. He says, baptism, which corresponds to this, that is the ark being saved through the water, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for good conscience. Now, in American evangelicalism, baptism is often seen as like an extraneous element. Like, we don't really, you know, it doesn't really mean much. You do it once, the beginning of your Christian life, and then you kind of leave it behind. And it's stripped of any theological meaning. But did you catch what Peter says about baptism? Look, look, look at it again. It says, baptism now saves you. Now, Peter is not alone here. Paul says baptism does all sorts of things. He says that, that baptism baptizes us into Christ's death and resurrection. Galatians 3.27 says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. In other words, what the apostles are telling us is that baptism is a crucial instrument of salvation. We are saved by faith alone, yes. But baptism united with faith is what saves us. The Westminster Larger Catechism calls us to improve our baptism. And it says it's a lifelong duty to seriously and thankfully consider our baptism and to have it remind us of our identity as a cleansed and forgiven new creation. Our baptism is meant to be a sign of hope. There's a story that Martin Luther once uh, was once asked, how do you know you're a Christian? And Martin Luther did not say, well, because I believe. You know what he said? He said, I've been baptized. I've been baptized. And what he's, what he's hinting at there, he's not saying that baptism automatically saves you. In fact, he's gonna, he's gonna argue that that's what Roman Catholics believe. But what he's saying is that we need some sort of hope that's outside of ourselves. That our faith, our faith is so up and down. 
And, and one of the gifts that God gives us are these concrete signs to help us that are outside of us. And baptism is that. When you are baptized, it is God's word spoken over you. It's God's doing. It's not yours. And so baptism becomes this symbol of hope that God has saved you, that he's marked you. It's the same with the communion. This is a concrete sign. It's a sign of hope. It is real as that water felt to your skin. However many years it was, that's as real as God's love for you. So, we have a reason for hope. We've been saved. Let's finally look at the, the final reason for our hope, which is that our Savior is sovereign. And we see this at the end of verse 21 through 22. He says, The baptism saves us, here at the end, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven, is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to him. Now, what does this have to do with hope? What is Peter saying to us? Well, he's saying that through Christ's resurrection, he's actually earned this privilege of being the sovereign of the whole universe. Did you catch the, the, the things that he names? Angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Because Jesus, the innocent one, has been crucified and then was raised from the dead, conquering death, that he is now given all the glory by, the, by God to sit at the right hand of God the Father. And so he becomes the one who is the sovereign over all the universe. And that, that's important, especially, do you remember, we've been talking about submission. The, the, the same word subjected, right there, is the same word that Peter's been saying. Be subject to the emperor. Be subject to the authorities. Be subject to your master. What Peter is saying is that we can submit and be subject to authorities because Jesus is at the top. There's nothing that can happen that Jesus does not have a say in. He is absolutely sovereign. And so what, what, is that, what that has to do with hope is the fact that the person we're putting our hope in is at the very top. He has the authority, the position, the power to do, to save us and to move on our behalf. Kenny Batson is a pastor of Grace Fellowship Church in El Dorado Springs, Missouri. You would never guess it from his history. In his early um, 20s and his late teens, uh, he, he had a crime spree, got into drugs. Uh, he stole cars, stole drugs, and he ended up with a prison sentence, prison sentence throughout the 90s. And when he came out, he was a changed man. He'd come to Christ, and he actually became a pastor, a minister. But as a former felon, he still had a rap sheet. So in 2018, at the age of 45, Batson and his wife submitted a request for a pardon from the governor of Missouri. Now, their hope for a pardon had everything to do with the power and position of the Missouri governor, right? They didn't, they didn't write Carrot Top or Beyonce, right, for a pardon. They, they, they wrote... They wrote the governor of Missouri, who has the power and the authority to grant a pardon. By virtue of his office, Governor Mike Parson had the authority to pardon Batson. And they could not have known it at the time they applied, but, but Parson, the current Missouri governor, is actually setting records for the most pardons granted by a Missouri governor. He's a former sheriff, 
And now, after three years, Mike Parsons has pardoned more than 600 people in the last three years. So Parsons has made his personal mission in his governorship to pardon and forgive. So he not only uniquely holds the authority to pardon, he also has the temperament for it, the conviction. And friends, it is the same with the Lord Jesus. He is the sovereign. He is the one who can give us hope. When we trust him, we have hope in Jesus. He has the authority and the temperament to be trusted, to give us hope, to give us hope. So friends, what I'm I'm trying to say is Christian hope is different because it's not in some circumstance. It's actually in a person. It's not even in you. Our world likes to to think that the hope should be put in ourselves. But Christian hope is something altogether different. Christian hope is put in the Lord Jesus because it trusts him, because it sees what he's done for us, that he has saved us, that he is sovereign, and that there is nothing, not a hair can fall from our head without his will for us. Friends, that is the hope that we have. And that's a hope we're sharing. A hope that whatever happens in our life, whatever happens to our life, whether it's a sin, if it's sin on our part, it will be forgiven by Christ. If it's suffering on our part, it will be redeemed in Christ. So that whatever happens, it will only be blessing to those who are in Jesus Christ. That is the Christian hope. So friends, have you set apart Christ as holy in your heart? What Peter is saying is that if we want to share the gospel, that we have to align our heart with the actual structure of the universe. That Christ, who is sitting on his throne, not only of the universe, but he also needs to be sitting on your heart's throne. Think about that. Consider that this morning. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father in heaven, we come to you and we ask, that you would sit on our throne of our heart. And we pray that you would open our lips, that we might declare your praise. You might declare the hope, the reason for our hope. For those who are despairing and hopeless this morning, we pray that you, by your Spirit, would minister to them, either by the bread and the wine we're about to take, or by your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.